What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and I am alone. This is a Christmas special. I've got some notes here. You can probably hear those tackling. Now, this is actually going to be my Patreon uh, show for this quarter. I put out the uh, poll as to what could be put on this this episode. And there's a couple of things. But what came back was my top five alternative Christmas movies. Um, so I thought, all right, we're going to go back. I'm going to do a bit of a countdown. Top of the pop style. So we'll get to the Christmas number one. Um, but then I also thought, well, if I'm doing my alternative movies, I should probably also be doing uh, the actual, actual Christmas movies. So I thought... I'll be doing that at the beginning, so we'll start with that as well. We'll give it some uh, a bit of a bit of festive cheer, if you will. But more than that, I actually had a thought about when I was doing this. There's always a bit of contention about what is uh, a Christmas film, what denotes or what defines a Christmas film. There's obvious ones, you know. Um, you watch a certain certain films, and you're like, well, that is definitely a Christmas film. I think, like, you know, some of the ones on the list um, are definitely Christmas films. Others become a little bit more contentious, and we'll get to that as well. So, what I wanted to do was to define three rules that I could work by. And if I can apply these rules as tenuously as possible to some of these films, then I would say that they would, it was possible for it to be considered a Christmas film. So, those three rules. So, let's get into it from the off. The first rule. The story is impacted by the events having taken place at Christmas. So, at first I thought it has to take place at Christmas. And a lot of these films don't have to take place at Christmas at all. You could easily transpose, even the proper Christmas films, you could transpose to another part of the year. But the events having taken place at Christmas has a special impact. So Christmas has to play a part in that way. A lesson must be learned uh, that makes someone in the film... A better person, and I had an addendum to this, based on Xmas values. And this came from uh, a friend of mine, Matt, who had this idea that she would be based around Christmas values. So, you know, they learn a lesson around family or generosity or selflessness and, you know, the love of all mankind and all that kind of stuff. So it's generally around that, that thing. And the third rule is the positivity of Christmas iconography must play a part in the story, or at least in the film. So, again, at first I had the positivity of, Chris, positivity of Christmas uh, must play a part, but that was too nebulous and a bit too I don't know, hard to pin down. I couldn't really sort of make that fit across all the films, not even the Christmas films, to be perfectly honest. So, But the positivity of Christmas iconography. So this is symbolism that represents Christmas. Easy one, Santa Claus. Other ones... Um, you know, like jingle bells or like reindeer and snow and presents and ribbons and decorations and tinsels and cake and all these are the things that sort of represent Christmas in specific ways. Do they have an impact 
for a po in a positive impact on the story. So those are the three rules, okay? So having gone through those rules, let's start with my top five uh, normal Christmas films. Uh, and I'll work backwards because I have them in an order. And actually this might this order might surprise people actually. Uh, just this list may surprise you. And uh, let's see what you think. So the, my number five, my number five, and this is, you know, a lot of this is due to nostalgia and other things, but my number five is The Santa Claus uh, from 1994, the Tim Allen film. Um, and that's the first part of this. Like When I was younger, I really liked um, Home Improvement, and obviously um, we then had him as uh, Buzz Lightyear. So Tim Allen in the mid-90s, height of his game. This is, you know, height of his powers, Tim Allen. And um, it's a particularly Christmassy story. I assume you've seen it. Uh, but, you know, spoilers ahead, because I'm going to talk about pretty much all of these films. Um, the simple story is that he is a divorcee, uh, father of one. And then one Christmas Eve, uh, whilst his son is staying with him, they hear a clatter outside, and when they go to investigate, they find a ladder up to their roof, uh, and they accidentally kill Santa. Um, and from that, comedy ensues. Uh, but part of it is, if you are the one that picks up the suit, you take on the mantle of Santa Claus. So for the next 12 months, uh, Scott Calvin um, has to bring his affairs into order, unprepared to become Santa Claus and deal with the, the repercussions of that, especially on his family and his work. Now, the film itself is good fun. I really do love this film. The, the film's good fun. Tim Allen's excellent in it. The cast are really good. Um, Bernard, the chief elf, who I've seen, there was a problem called Numbers. I forget the guy's name, but he was in that. He's, he's pretty good. Um, and, they, you know, they have kids playing elves, and they've got some good jokes and that stuff in it. It's, it's a... It's almost a Disney film, so it's it's very wholesome and has issues though. I will say it has some issues. At the end of the film, he technically kidnaps his son and is chased down by the police and seems to be forgiven simply because he becomes Santa. And uh, I'm not sure that would stand up in court. Um, but I do like this idea that like, he's a corporate toy maker. He works for like you know technically it could be like Hasbro or Mattel or any other toy large toy making firm. And it's that transposition of working from a corporate thing to becoming just this generous, fat, jolly guy who actually gives and makes presents in the workshop. Um, and it's again, it's this, this. This seems to be a bit of a thing, not just for this five, as in my proper films, but in the alternative five as well. This sort of indictment of capitalism, which is bizarre, because that's what drives Christmas. But the Christmas movies are like, it's not all about the presents, but uh, uh, don't forget to go out and buy presents. Um, so it is. It's a bit silly, but yeah, it's a definite indictment of, uh, of corporate um, toy making in the film. Um, again, there's this idea of coming to terms with changes in your life. I mean, the whole film is about change. He's, you know, he's, he's coming to terms with the fact his wife has, has moved on. She's married somebody else. Her, his son has another male role model, and all these bits and pieces. And it's almost like a, you know, you could see it as a midlife crisis story. Um, in many ways, you know, he's, he's trying to deal with this stuff. So um, it's it has those sort of uh, connotations as well, especially with the, the, the weight gain and the white hair and all this kind of thing. So, um, But the Santa transformation as well, like when he fully turns into Santa look, it's a proper, proper good Santa look. It really suits him. Um, 
the things to sort of learn in this film, or the, the other thing to note in this film, it's all comedy. You, know, you have like farting reindeer and uh, um, special forces elves that use tinsel to break uh, people out of cells, that sort of thing. But the fact of it is that this this film includes a, a scene where a Santa, a Santa, right, and a Santa because obviously it's about legacy, which is again something else that seems to come up in these films. Um, a Santa dies and somebody takes over. Uh, but you'd still see a Santa die. And the question I have in this is sort of like, does Santa actually die? Like, is, is this one of those things where, like, if you were to know the full story, like, could there be a the Santa Claus, you know, uh, redemption or the Santa Claus reboot where it's Tim Allen that's got to die? And it's like, well, you actually have just spent your time. You've done your time as Santa. So tonight is the night. Like, you've got to pass it on tonight. So it was almost bound to happen. So he set it up. Because uh, the Santa, like, when he, even when he, just, when he disappears, like, he waves. He's almost like, I'm done. Um, so that's the interesting thing. But um, the other thing about this film is, is the lessons. So if we go through the, the rules as well. So the story is impacted by the events taking place at Christmas. Well, he turns into Santa. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's got to have happened at Santa. It's, if it hadn't have happened at, at Christmas, he wouldn't have killed Santa. It wouldn't have happened. So it's 12 months. Uh, this is a tw- film was a 12-month period. Um, starting and ending at Christmas. Uh, a lesson must be learned that makes someone in the film a better person. Well, he definitely does that, um, especially around the Christmas values. He becomes Santa. He becomes more understanding, you know, with kids and more generous and with his time and less selfish. And so, yeah, he becomes that personification of what Santa should be. The positive Christmas iconography must play a part in this story. Well, you can't escape the fact that he's definitely... Um, he, well, firstly, he becomes Santa... Um, but the positivity comes from him literally taking that mantle on. Um, the suit, in particular, the sleigh, uh, is all really important to his this figure, this this construct that becomes Santa. So I definitely think you know number five, definitely a Christmas film can't be beat. Uh, number th- number four, can count then. So number four, uh, two thousand eleven, Arthur Christmas animated film. Um, I saw this in a, an independent, small cinema, tiny cinema it was, uh, called the Kinema in the Woods in Lincolnshire, and it was absolutely awesome. Um, so, what about this film? Well, firstly, this film is just lovely. It's one of those things with the with Christmas films. It's sort of like, you know, you can analyse them and pick them apart, but it seems a bit pointless because the whole point of them is it's just lovely. It's a lovely story. Um, Arthur is um, the son of Santa, one of two. One is um, clearly the up-and-coming. Again, this has got legacy. Like, there's Grandpa Santa, there's Santa, and there's the young Santas. And one of them is Arthur, who's a bit of a dimwit. Um, and the other one, played by Hugh Laurie, is the up-and-coming. He's actually taking on the mantle of Father Christmas in the future. And, um, the, 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 again, this is an indictment of corporate America, or at least, or even just corporations and corporate the corporate world. Uh, and this thing of like, you know, we need to get back to a simpler way of doing things, not going backwards, because it clearly highlights in the film that there's Grandpa Santa who's nuts, um, and voiced by the excellent Bill Nye. Um, you know, it goes back to something. Don't go backwards, but maintain an essence. That's always there, and so you have the sort of the um, Hugh Laurie, um, painly ass kind of Santa wannabe who's got this massive flying. Uh, this is a ship. It's basically a UFO, 
with a reflective surface on the bottom and all you know you can't see it becomes invisible and all the elves come down and do what actually do the delivery rather than santa uh, and all these other bits and pieces but it's all about the technology and one child is missed um, but instead of it being identified as a single child it's done on a percentage and it's like, well, it's within the accepted parameters of failure. You know, it's like, oh man, this is this is like working in corporations. I can tell you, um, but Arthur will not accept that. You know, he sort sorts the letters out. He won't accept one child, any child being missed, and so he finds the present, or at least the present, sort of drops in his lap actually, and he goes on a mission to deliver this single present, and in doing so, uh, reminds his brother and his father, uh, the father, Christmas. Um, the meaning of Christmas, what they're there for, you know, it's not about being, it's not about being loved, it's about giving and about sort of making sure that every child feels loved, um, and you know, it's, it's again, the animation is great, the voice cast, I should say the voice cast in this film as well, um, you've, you've got first Imelda Staunton, uh, who's going to go on to play Queen Elizabeth in the next season of The Crown, um, and also known uh, as the evil... Female teacher in Harry Potter films, forget her name. Uh, Jim Broadbent, always national treasure. Jim Broadbent, uh, Hugh Laurie, Bill Nye, and James McAvoy uh, as uh, Arthur, and it, it's just a simple story. But again, it's sort of you know it's animated, so you're able to get silly things in there. Like they've got a sidekick elf who's able to wrap any presents with three pieces of tape, you know, and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, I forget the girl, the woman, sort of the girl, the woman who voices her, but I've seen her other things. All really good, all solid stuff. This film, I'll say. Uh, so, Arthur Christmas 2021. Now, let's have a quick look go through the rules. The story is impacted by the events taking place at Christmas. Of course, it's about delivering a present on Christmas by the son of Santa. Uh, a lesson must be learnt that makes someone in the film a better place. The only person who doesn't learn a lesson in this film is Arthur because he already knows it. It's everybody else. Everybody else in the Santa this thing learns this idea of not about. You, know, you don't have to be loved. It's about making sure everybody else feels loved because of what you're doing, and, and that everybody is important. You know, it's not just a statistic. Uh, the positivity of Christmas iconography must play a part in the story. Well, again, he's Santa, but also throughout the film, there's this notion. Oh, there's a bit. Actually, there's a little bit where Arthur's at his lowest, and he's you know he's about to give up, and they give a story, and you see these things about the the reindeer and stuff, and it inspires him again that he's got to complete the mission. Um, and it works really, really well. You know, it's, it's it's just got everything you need. So, I um, really do think this is a good film, and especially for kids. You know, it's one of those sort of it's it's you, I think, but uh, definitely worth checking out. Okay, so that's number four. So number three. Now then, they get to the three now, and the three is interesting because it's all a bit like depending on which way. Thank you for that. Um, Whichever way the wind's blowing, these may change. But number three, I'm going to start with It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, the 1946 uh, movie with Jimmy Stewart. And if you haven't seen this, because this is one of those ones that gets talked about a lot, but I'm not entirely sure it, it gets watched as much as it gets talked about. You know, Everybody seems to sort of talk about it, that... Yes, I've seen It's a Wonderful Life, and it gets parodied a number of times. You know, this idea of... You know, I wish I wasn't born. If I wasn't born, you know, that'll teach him a lesson. Sort of like you see how the world is um, if you hadn't been been there to, to live your life and the impact that your life had had on the world. Um, outright, I'll let you know now, this film 
makes me weep like a baby towards the end. Like with it's just such a brilliantly positive ending. Like if you're feeling down, like you watch the end of this film, or you just watch the film and then you get to the ending, it is it's phenomenal. Like it's a really like you know heartwarming, um, wholesome. I mean, it's it's a bit cliche these days, but it, that's the point. It, this was one of the originals. Um, but more than that, like James Stewart in this film is ace. Again, I've always liked James Stewart in many films, but this is one of those films where you get to see his range uh, as an actor. Like he plays George Bailey through different ages, you know, from sort of like an early te- or late teen, you know, early twenties to through to a middle aged. Um, middle-aged man with a family um and, and george bailey again is sort of like he's such an aspirational character he's a bit like arthur christmas you know in that way that he he just does instinctively sort of like just does the right thing he makes the right choices uh, even when temptation sort of is there in the form of uh, whether it be mr potter or some other things the opportunity to travel around the world like he will give up his savings to give to somebody else to make sure that they survive but like um the good example the one of the great films is he gets married and they're about to go on their honeymoon and they find that because his um uncle uh, has lost some money quite a lot of money actually they use their honeymoon savings to cover the bank um the Bailey loans, um, saving and loans, and in doing so, like can't go away. Like that's it. He's he's, ma- he's tied to this bank and all this other stuff, and covers everybody's thing uh, when they think that there's going to be a run on the banks. Um, and so, you know, he just does the right thing. There's there's a character in this film who's never I forget now, which is you know the the attractive girl, and she's meant to be seen as a bit of a not slut's probably the wrong word, but like she's she's a little bit of a you know bit more opportunistic and so, um, but. He never gives into it, but when she does hit hard times, like George is the person that gives her the opportunity to 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 do better, to get out of town and do what she needs to do. Um, and at no point is it seen as like him hitting on her, or there's nothing. There's nothing sleazy there. It's just George doing what he feels is the right thing to do. Um, if anything, like he is, he's the post-war. Uh, personification of the American dream, like this is what a person should be like. He's, you know, he stands up for his, his family, is he stands up for his community, and he stands up for his country, even in the, you know when the circumstances dictate. Like George isn't able to go to war because he literally because he saved his brother from an, uh, falling into the ice uh, when they were younger, um, and in doing so, is deaf in one ear. So he sacrificed himself. He sac- almost sacrificed himself to save his brother. But it saved him from going to war. But he still joins, like you know, the home front and does all these other things with uh, uh, raising money and other bits and pieces. So you know, George is this great character. But he's, but I also find that his frustration and his um, just constant sort of brow beating, the way life sort of you know, he just keeps handing him things, is so relatable and and so sort of like just honest. That, yeah, life can do that. There are times when you can be the best person in the room and life is still going to serve you a plate of shit. Um, but he's still going to stand up and he's still going to take it. And, and um, the moment at the end of that film when you think he's done for, like after everything he's done, um, when he does, his brother has lost the money. Sorry, it's not his brother's uncle. So the, the, he covered it when there's a rush on the banks. Um, but his his uncle loses this, this eight, eight grand and Mr. Potter keeps it and hides it, and it's it's going to be done for for fraud because they think like if you can't account for it, then you you've probably stolen it. He thinks he's going to go to prison, 
which is why he he intends to kill himself because he thinks well, if I can kill myself, there's a I have a life insurance and that will cover everything and everyone will be okay and people will be better off without me. So to be sent to that, but then when he obviously gets back and he, he it's not just seeing what the world is like without him. That's the part that everyone sort of remembers, uh, that everyone parodies. This notion of what the world is without you, you know, and you do some. There's some great turn-ups because one of the the just these instances, and it makes you think about what you've done in your life and how you've done things. Um, and one of the things is that when he was a kid, he worked at the chemist, and the chemist was issuing some drugs, and he miscalculated that like the chemist miscalculates the dosage. Uh, no, he doesn't. He missed because he missed <laughs> misses the bottle entirely. Actually, puts poison into these pen, uh, these medicine capsules, and George catches it and and stops him from issuing them. Um, in doing so, obviously saves somebody's life. In the world that George didn't live, or actually he dies in the lake uh, when he saves his brother. Um, that those pills go out. And so they do kill someone, and that chemist loses his job, loses his shop, and becomes a you know like a, what they call a rummy. Get out of here, you rummy! Um, you know he's a drunk on the streets. He spent time in a psychiatric hospital, but you realise that the only reason he put the wrong medicine in, or he put the poison in, was because he was so distraught because he found out his son had died, and so in his grief he made an error. We could all do it. It's you know it happens, but that George wasn't there to help it, and it goes on and on. It's, it's a great little story of how things are different when you finally see it. But I also like the fact you see his entire life. Like this film is a saga. But the bit for me, more than that, I think it choked up from talking about it. But the thing is, is when he does get home and uh, his, his family, I'm trying to mention him, his daughter. When his daughter is there and he picks her up and all this other stuff and you think he's done for and that the auditor turns up and says, like, you know, basically with the coppers. Turns up with the police and he's about, you think he's done for, or at least he thinks he's done for. And then the town turns up uh, and, oh, excuse me, the town turns up and has the money for him and pays it out. And that's it, you know. Um, he's saved, the bank's saved, and they've all, George's life has paid off. So, does, does it fit into the rules? We're going to get to that point now. <clears throat> so, the story is impacted by the events taking place at Christmas. So it's the lead up to Christmas. It's not actually Christmas. It's the lead up to Christmas when the events happen. Because it's this, the, the bank is taking in end of year savings. That's what they've lost. Um, and so... Is it impacted by it at Christmas? Yes and no. Um, you know, it has more of an impact. I suppose this film, the, the events of this film travel throughout his life. But it's bookended by being at Christmas. And so, I think it's more impactful for, for George. You know, if it was in the summer, he may have taken a different turn. But it's that thing of saving his family at Christmas. So, I believe so. I think that's very true. A lesson must be learned that makes someone in the film a better person. Um, there's less of a there's less of a lesson and more of a revelation, which is an understanding. It's still someone's idea. It's all what they know. Um. But it's the revelation of for him that actually this small life that he believes he's led um, matters. And that's the lesson you should take from this film. You watch this film and you realise that you have an impact on other people. Like, you know, um, It can be as simple as 
you know, helping someone out in a moment of um, strife or whatever. But in that moment, you don't know what it is that the impact of that moment is on them, the ripple effect. And that's what you see throughout this film. So, I, I mean, I could go on and on about this film, but, um, you know, the other thing to note really is, I mean, the other thing as well is this film was made in 1946. And um, so it's post-war era, um, America, so that they are coming off the high of the, the the war. But George is incredibly, he's almost like a liberal progressive. Um, you know, he he sort of stands up for the little man. Like this was what, again, like I said the American dream. This guy personifies truth, justice, and the American way. Literally, that's what he's for. Uh, and it, again, this anti-capitalism thing runs again in this idea of Mr. Potter, like Mr. Potter who runs the, the, the bank, the big bank, and he's also a property owner in town, runs the town, owns the town. And George is the little man standing up for him. Like This is the personification of, you know, what the, I wouldn't even say the Democrats, but like this progressive Labour, uh, liberal idealism of like, you know, how communities, again, should be supported and should the little people... It sounds terrible to say that, but, you know, the the less fortunate should look after each other and stand as a community. Like that's a big part of this film because George is the main character, but you have a community throughout this film. Like the Pete, the reason that when he isn't born and you see that world pays off is because you've created these relationships through in this community around him. Um, so yeah, everyone, le- people learn a lesson this film, but I think even as a viewer, you learn a lesson. Uh, the positivity of Christmas uh, the positivity of Christmas iconography must play a part in the film. Um, the end of the film with the tree, I suppose, is the, bit, the main bit because he gets given the opportunity to sort of pay the money back. And the phrase is, what is it? So the bell rings. So every time a bell rings, an angel gets their wings. Um, and Clarence, the angel that sort of saved him, gets his wings. So. Uh, I definitely think that that tree is there and it forms a part because the tree is on the sorry the bell is on the tree and and that's a key part of this um, the recognition of Clarence and the work he's done so yeah it's a wonderful life such a good film such a good film number three and there's a reason it's number three it's probably more like nostalgia I didn't watch um, it's a wonderful life till much much recent quite recently actually probably the last sort of seven years um but it's now a tradition every christmas we watch that film fantastic so number two oh compose myself number two uh is actually home alone 2 so why isn't home alone on this list but home alone 2 is well i honestly think that home alone 2 is a better film um home alone 1 is a reactive film it's a good film it's a fun film you know um the McAllister home being invaded uh, the defence, you know, young Macaulay Culkin doing all those bits and pieces. Really good. I mean, it stands up as, as a film. You know, it's no wonder that it's one of the most successful, um, you know, uh, financially successful films of Chris Columbus's and, and um, career, who obviously directed it. Um, but, the, the, but the thing is with it, it is it's, it's a reactive film. And yes, you can apply all those rules to it. Definitely apply all the rules to it. Um, but th- I don't know. There's just something that with two, you, you although it's in a minute a year later, Kevin McAllister feels like a much more well-rounded character. But even more than that, he has a morality. Like the morality in the first one is almost sinister. You know, like there's a scene where he obviously admit, you know, he acknowledges that he's got to uh, protect his home, 
you know, this is my castle and I have to protect it, sort of thing. And I, and I get that. And sets up the traps. But it's almost like when he gets an enjoyment out of causing pain. He does in the second one as well. But the second one is run on this fact of the second half of the film, or at least the sort of the third act, is an acknowledgement that something bad is going to happen. Um, in this case, it's... Uh, what's its toy store? Is going to be robbed by uh, Marv and Harry. Uh, stealing all the money from the kids' hospital. That's you know he obviously he takes the the savings or the money he's made in profit and then he gives it to the to the children's hospital. And that's going to be stolen. And in this case, sort of instead of being a defensive, he goes almost because on the offense, uh, knowing the right thing to do is to stop them and to bring them to justice in the only way he knows. And then he forms his his diabolical plan. Um, but the, the, it's the fact that like you know the 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 film takes that swing um, towards the end because you get the rest of it as well. The, the first part is pretty much a replay of Home Alone One. You know, it just transposed the home to a hotel. You, you even get sort of like you know, was it the soul angels with dirty faces, or whatever the gangster flicks? So, you know, being used and and the silhouette of something in a shower and all this other stuff. And it's all it's all used. And it's all very similar. It's all very good. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I think the cast in this are good. Tim Curry is absolutely excellent as like the head concierge or whatever, the hotel manager. Um, and his reactions in this film are like he he is comedy gold in this film. At like, the moment, like you know, he really mimics the Grinch with his big grin when he finds out it's a stolen credit card. Um, to uh, when they get think they get shot at. Um, later on at one point and one of my favourites is um, when uh, Kevin's family turn up and his mum Catherine O'Hara um, turns up and, and you know she makes a point of she's going out to look for Kevin in the streets because he's, he's been chased away from the hotel and uh, Tim, Tim Curry's like but madam you can't go outside there's thieves and hooligans everything out there uh, you know obviously compounding the fact that Kevin's out there on the streets and she slaps him and uh his reaction to the wobbling lip, and he says, uh, "You know, wrap, wrap, wrap up warm, madam," and uh, can't look anyone in the face. Is 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 spot on. It's so well done. The timing is 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 perfect. It's one of my favourite sort of moments in the film. Um, but it is a Christmas film. It works better for me than the first one because the first film obviously is, is centred around the sort of the comedy of, of, of that f- house invasion, but it's about being invaded like there's nothing there driving it other than they're away everyone gets away for christmas but the second one like i said you get first you get to see new york at christmas so he gets to see the christmas tree like the rockefeller tree and all that kind of jazz uh and all that's great but it's about also the other thing i find in more interesting is from the second film to the first film the second film has a more mature message uh the first film you meet the old guy next door with the beard scary old guy and you find out that he doesn't talk to his son and he doesn't get to see his granddaughter and all this other stuff and then they reconcile at the end like you don't understand the gist of it but there's a reconciliation that kevin witnesses so it's all very nice but the second one you meet the bird lady in the park and she sort of you know gives him this uh, understanding that not everything works out well you know, everything's not everything works out fantastically. So she takes him to like the um, orchestra. She gets to see the orchestra play, and all that's wonderful. And she's like, you know, he's like, oh, I'll remember you. 
and she's like, don't make promises you can't keep. Like, she's got a broken life. Like, some, you find out she had a family, or she or didn't have kids, but she was married, and she had a job, and cho- choices were made that put her in that position. Like, you don't know what they are, doesn't matter, but it's not like, you know, and that's part of the point, like, it doesn't matter. She's just taken that, that's the, the road that life has taken her down. And it's never going to be reconciled. It's never going to be sorted out. Like she, she doesn't go off and join a shelter and get a job and find a man. No, no. The end of the film is just that she has a friend. That's it. Like he goes back, he gets those turtle doves, and he goes and gives her one at the end. It's an acknowledgement that she will be remembered and that she is important and she isn't ignored. And it's this idea that like you know, um, people will live on the streets. Like she's still living on the streets in the cold. You know, she's still the crazy bird lady at the end of the film. Like she doesn't change her status and I just find that more interesting a little bit more, more mature that not, not everything can be resolved by a nine year old and, and their, their you know acts of violence um, so that's always interesting uh, I also like the fact that the finale in this film is I think better uh, played better the stunts are incredible um, and that some of the hits like uh, you know I know it's all makeup and and, and Make believe, but some of the hits that Marv gets when he gets hit in the face with brick after brick after brick uh, is awesome. Um, makes me cringe. Um, but yeah, that's what it is. Pete McCauley Culkin, I think he's actually really good in this film. I always wonder, like, you know, you see him now, he's obviously had a, he's had a tough life, but you know, it's always weirder um, when you see him as a kid and you think, like, you know, that's when you were a megastar. Um, but yeah, Home Alone 2. I'm going to finish it there. Like, does it, is it a Christmas film? The story is impacted by it being at Christmas. Well, yeah, totally. Um, you know, that's when they're taking the journey. But also, um, the whole thing of like Marv and that being like, if it, if it didn't take place at Christmas, he wouldn't be able to defend the stolen money and so on and so forth. A lesson must be learned that makes someone uh, f- a film a better person. Well, this is, they basically learn the same lesson as the first film um, about being. You know, your family and all this other stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Positivity of Christmas iconography must play a part of the family. But the whole thing is about the Rockefeller tree. It's about Christmas trees. Like he wants, they don't want to go to, the family's going to Florida and, and Kevin doesn't want to because he, he wants to go somewhere with Christmas trees. And he gets to see one and that's where he reconciles with his mum uh, at the end of the film. So, three rules, three for three. Easier Christmas film. So, these are getting easier and easier. So, what is my number one? Well, one of the things you haven't heard on the list yet is a Christmas Carol. So, am I going to give you a Christmas Carol? Well, yes, sort of. Um, it could have been a Muppets Christmas Carol, which I do like and probably would be in my top ten. But it's not my favourite adaptation. And the reason for that is because, having read the story of a Christmas Carol, the Christmas Carol is a ghost story. It's, And it's not even a, not a nice one. Pardon me. Um, Christmas Carol has been taken numerous times now and adapt, adapted... And, you know, they focus on, um, the ghosts are always there, you know, Marley and the three ghosts, uh, past, present and future, and um, the lessons are always learned. It's always the same kind of thing. But in many cases, it's usually played to be light-hearted, or, you know, it, it ends up being played for uh, joviality. You know, not so much humour, but there's a jovial tone to it. Even Scrooge, you know, as a grump, is played as a sort of like you know comedic drama, a grump, that sort of thing. <clears throat> and whilst I enjoy a Muppet's Christmas Carol, it's never going to be like horrific. I I, I think it, it does focus on um, the emo. It does focus on the emotionality of things. Like you know, you get to see uh, Scrooge's relationship with his with his ex partner and this other stuff. Um, not his ex partner in Marley, but in in his 
girlfriend and potential wife and what he left behind. Um, and it's all good. The puppets are great. The songs are great. And it's but it's you know it's played for laughs uh, for the most part. But there's a film that doesn't do that. It does it does play for laughs, but it, it brings in a real dose of cynicism and horror that I think gets missed. Uh, and that is 1988's Scrooged, uh, starring Bill Murray uh, as uh, Alex Cross, um, the sort of head or, of a network or the president of a, you know, of a network, um, <clears throat> and he is just, again, again, it's this anti sort of corporate um, message that keeps coming through in these Christmas films, which is bizarre. Uh, but he is, he's a bit of a tosspot, let's be honest, the guy's a tosspot. And you get the whole thing of how mean he is. Like, you know, you see the, uh, the at the very start, like the things he's putting on TV, like the date, the day the reindeer, the night the reindeer died, when Lee Majors is going to save uh, Santa and the elves, um, or the advert he's got ready for um, his version of, of A Christmas Carol, it's called Scrooge, uh, it's going to go live. And it's all violent and dark, and it's like, you know, this is the, what's the true meaning of Christmas? So you get all that, and you get to see him, how he interacts with people. And he is a vile person, like, he's, he's a complete ass. Like, he fires Elliot um, Laudermilk, played by uh, Bobcat Goldthwait. Brilliant again. Um, and, you know, it's played for laughs, it's funny, he, his interactions with like, he's Bill Murray, like, I'm sure that this was ad-libbed and, and all this other stuff. He's, he play, he's like, anarchic and, and a bit crazy. Um... But the moment this switches up, the moment it sort of like it steps up a gear, is the moment that his Marley returns, and it's this version of Marley is his old boss that sort of brought him up in the business uh, when he was younger, the old network chief. And again, it's sort of played for laughs. Like you know, you have a golf ball come out the back of the guy's head. There's a mouse there. And when he, he so Bruce, not Bruce, but Bill Murray shoots him, and the the drink spurts out of him. So it's a bit Beetlejuicy in that effect. But then it goes straight for horror. Like the the makeup, like they're not messing. This guy looks like a rotted corpse, um, and he's angry. Like he's saying, like you know, you could be just as bad as this. Like I'm stuck on Earth in this terrible place. And then he, grabbing Alex Cross, the uh, Bill Murray, and forcing him through the window. Like a little bit like mold. It doesn't shatter. It just molds around him. And then he grabbing onto the the his former boss's arm. The flesh. The decayed mummified flesh breaks away and then the bone snaps and he thinks he's in a full whilst, whilst his boss laughs maniacally it's almost like a pure horror I mean you know it's, this is a, com- a horror comedy um, comedy horror maybe I don't know which way it would be but that reminds me of like House or even Beetlejuice to some extent um, and it, it maintains that darker tone throughout I mean you know you get to see the Ghost of Christmas Past like you know um, it's probably the least um, scary, the least sort of creepy. But you do get to see like how harsh his life was. Again, that you know this idea of him being poor and you know how bad his father was and all this thing. Like they don't hold back. There's no sort of you know it makes him the victim, which is the the, the point. But you sort of see why. Uh, but then you see the the joy, the count counter that showing the joy of when he meets Claire, um, played by. Christ, I must remember that. We'll come back to that. But yeah, um, you know, they, they, they have that great sort of dynamic. But then they also see, like, when she goes to the present, like, you've you met Claire and she works at a homeless shelter. So you meet these homeless guys 
and this group, this little troop of homeless people, again, living in New York, so probably know the bird lady. Um, and then you meet one of them that's died later on in the, when, when the ghost of Christmas present moment is over. Um, and um, it's in that moment, like, you know, he, he, you, when I see a lot of um, Christmas Carol adaptations, the change in Scrooge comes quickly. You know, it comes at certain moments, but it sort of just seems to happen like that. A lot of the times they sort of place it on the third, the Ghost of Christmas Future, and it always makes, to me, makes Scrooge seem like a bit of a, a bit of a dick. Because he's like, oh, I don't want to die, uh, so I'll, I'll sort myself out. Um, there's others that sort of bring it forward, and the Ghost of Christmas Present probably has a bit more of an influence. Like, it sort of happens, you know, less gradual. Um... But with this, there's sort of like that they constantly play things up. Like you know, he he Bill Murray seems to play it really well of bouncing between remorse and you know remembrance and nostalgia, and then back to his sort of psyche, vile self. Um, and that 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 balance or that bouncing is what sort of makes him incredibly uh, fascinating to watch throughout this because he gets to see, like, you know, again, it's a bit like the anti, uh, well, we say this, it's sort of like the anti, it's a wonderful life, like, that's the whole point of wonderful life, it's sort of like the reverse of Christmas Carol, um, in that, like, you know, without you around, like, this is the stuff, this is the impact your life makes, you know, here's the things that you do, so, your secretary that's been around for you for years, you give her a towel, like, she can't afford to take her son to a decent doctor, and, you know, like, your brother, who clearly still, you know, wants to support you and know you and all this other stuff. Having said that, there's a weird thing in this film that I've never understood, and I'm always sure that there are deleted scenes or something that explain it more, but his brother is married to um, this lady, the woman, I forget her flaming name, what she's called in the film, but there, when you, when it comes to uh, the Ghost of Christmas Future, you see, you see Alex Cross's death, or at least his funeral, and she's there. She's crying. You know, she's got tears down her eyes. And then later on, when they have the, um, uh, you know, he has the big climax back in the studio of the Scrooge event he's doing, he references her through the TV. Like, he talks to his brother, because he's obviously been there that evening, seen them partying and doing Trivial Pursuit. And they, you know, they talk about the, um, what boat took them to Gilligan's Island. It was the SS Minnow. Um, and he, he says that. And they're all like, well, how did you know we're talking about that? But he also then references her, and she, her reaction indicates to me that they had a relationship, or some, there's something there that is unusual, but it's never mentioned or brought up in the rest of the film, so I, that's, it's weird. Um, but yeah, I, I just find this film, like I say, it, it maintains that not, not just the horror, because when it needs horror, it gives horror. Like The Ghost of Christmas Future is, is closer to the book, in that idea that in the book, um, beneath the shroud of the Ghost of Christmas Future, you meet these two figures, these two shriveled children, and they represent desperation and hunger or something like that. And there's an al- allusion to that in this film, that like he opens up the cloak and there's these figures inside the cloak. Um, so, you know, you, you've got the horror there, but they maintain, and, they main, and the cynicism, all the way through to the end, really. Um, but then they let Bill Murray loose. Um, Frank Cross, because Alex Cross, that's a complete different franchise frank cross um and he's able to sort of sell his redemption for about eight to nine minutes at the end of this film it's just pure bill murray joy uh, and he's still got that sarky sense of humor and stuff but it works so well so does it work as a as a, as a 
adaptation of Christmas Carol. God, yes, you know you've got um, they've got the Cratchit stand-ins in uh, Grace and her family, the Cooleys. That's it, Grace Cooley, uh, Elliot Loudermilk, also a sort of a Cratchit-esque stand-in, and then Claire stands obviously for the Lost Love uh, and everything else. So it's, it's perfect. This is such a perfect Christmas film for me because it, it maintains that level of, of darkness that. Uh, other films don't always have at this time of year. So that was just quickly my five Christmas films. I'm going to quickly jump on to, straight away onto my five alternate Christmas films. And this is going to be a quick list. Well, not a quick list, we'll still talk. But let's just get straight into it. So at number five of my alternates, an absolute joy of a film, an absolute madness of a film, Bill Goldberg, the wrestler, Bill Goldberg, playing Santa in Santa's sleigh. So what's the story? Well, Santa isn't the jolly old fat man. He's actually the son of Satan. And a thousand years ago, he lost a bet to an angel. And in do uh, having in lost, losing that bet, he has to deliver presents to children for a thousand years. And guess what? The thousand years are up in 2005. And so he is coming back for revenge. So he comes back to the small town looking for the angel that he lost the bet to. And in doing so, basically goes on an absolute rampage uh, in killing spree. Um, it's not dark at all. It's violent, it's gory, but it's played up for laughs. I mean, the opening scene of this film is... Um, you can find it on YouTube. Like, if, you know, if you haven't seen this film, just go on and put Bill Goldberg or Santa's Sleigh opening scene. It's on YouTube. And it's great. It's a family of... Again, it comes to this sort of this rich thing. About, sort of, I suppose it's about going against the, uh, the true meaning of Christmas. And uh, you know they they are they're rich and they're lording it up and they're, they're they're clearly like not particularly nice people. And then he comes in and just basically beats them all up and kills them. Uh, but it's hilarious, uh, absolutely hilarious. Um, and it's, it's just so left field throughout it. Like it also taps into other ideals of Christmas. Like he doesn't have the reindeer; he's got a big bison, which I think is maybe like some of the Nordic version of the you know um, and and. It just looks cool. <laughs> it's really good. And, and Bill Goldberg is huge. You know, he's a big dude. Um, but let's just put it against the rules. So let me get the rules out. So we've got the three rules. The story is impacted by the events taking place at Christmas. Yes, it has to. Like This version of Santa has decided to take his revenge on Christmas. That's what he's going to do uh, after the thousand years. So it has to take place on Christmas. And it is impacted by doing so because he is Santa. Uh, a lesson must be learnt that makes someone in the film a better person. So the main, one of the main protagonists in this film is a young lad who sort of becomes the, say the final boy almost as it were, standing up to the Goldberg Santa, and he learns. It's, it's, it's a coming of age story in that respect. Like he learns to stand up for himself. He learns that he can be a, to say be a man is is obviously you know not exactly um, the right way of putting it now, but he can. He gains confidence. He, you know, he asserts himself in a better way by the end of the film. So, uh, and in doing so, he's able obviously, to to get on with his life. The positivity of a Christmas iconography plays a part. Well, they find the angel, and it's that typical thing of an angel at the top of the tree kind of deal, uh, and it plays out. And also, um, they do use. I think there's like Christmas bazookas and all this other stuff. So the other Christmassy bits definitely occur. So Santa's sleigh, two thousand and five, definitely. Christmas film. Number four. Number four, this is a goodie. This is so we're going for a comedy. I'm sticking with the comedies really in this bit. Uh Office Christmas Party from what, 1992. It's definitely not 1992. 
It's more recent than that. Did I change those around? Um, office Christmas party. Uh, not sure. But office Christmas party. Uh, quite recent. Probably like 2018, actually. 2016, 2017, something like that. Um, stars TJ Miller. Um, uh, Jason Bateman, Jennifer Aniston and uh, Olivia Munn and the idea is basically a branch of this company is about to get shut down and the only way they can sort of save it is by winning a, a um, an account and in doing so they have to sort of like bring this guy to a massive Christmas party. Funnily enough at the office um, so it's the first Christmas party uh, Christmas office party on the list, it may not be uh, the last um, but the, you know could the film be structured for another part time of the year? And this is one of those things, really. No, it couldn't. The idea, the whole idea, of this is, is sort of it's the end of the year, end of the finance. Sort of, you know, they see it almost as the end of the financial years. They allude to that a little bit, not really, because obviously it ends in April. But um, end of it being Christmas, it puts everybody at the chance of redundancy. I think at Christmas, and that's obviously the worst time. So it being Christmas is really important actually to this film. Last hurrah, as it were, was this Christmas party. Um, all three of the main characters in this film learn a lesson through the actions. I mean, T.J. Miller doesn't learn the lesson he should have learned, but we'll sort of get less about that. He's the sort of the slacker and the sort of uh, the dimwit, and he's always had money to fall back on because it's his parents' company. Um, and he learns responsibility. Like he again sort of always learns to stand up for himself, assert himself, and become a better um, boss. Uh, or understands that he he could be doing something better. Um, through doing these events, uh, Jason Bateman is also like the stiff corporate background, always kept the other guy out of, pri- out of trouble. Well, prison, probably right, but um, he's the one that learns to become a bit more agile and a bit more accepting that life can throw you these sort of like um, side balls that you're going to have to cope with and that sort of thing. And, and again, it's he. So he ends up he ends up with Olivia Munn, which is bizarre. Um, and Jennifer Anderson is the ruthless sort of like head office exec who's come in to sort of like sacrifice all these people because they're not performing or the branch isn't performing. So why would we sacrifice that? You know, why would I sacrifice the greater good to for this company? Um, and softens. This film's all about softening and understanding that actually giving people a chance is the right. You know, there's better ways of doing these things and coming in and just demanding that people do. You know, do as they're told. Um, so they're the lessons. I would just throw that in. So they're the lessons that are learned in this film. So it's called Office Christmas Party. It is a Christmas film. It's fantastic. On top of all, all that, it's a riotous comedy. I love this film. It makes me laugh so much. There's some stupid stunts in this. It's that one of those sort of like you know crazy sort of like party films, Bad Neighbors, or even like what right back to Animal House or Porky's. It's sort of into that vein of things. Um, and the cast in this film, like I say, I, I kind of like T.J. Miller, must admit, when he's funny. Jennifer Aniston is, is actually really good in this. Jason Bateman, I can take or leave. But this is when he was going through that sort of period of doing these sorts of comedies. This, um, Couples Retreat, um, de- was it not, not Date Night, Games Night, and he's done all those. So, yeah, he does them, but, you know, and he's all right. Uh, Olivia Munn's actually pretty good in this. I, I don't really can't consider her to be a very good actress i think she's fine but she's actually really good in this the star in this for me though the one thing i come back to is kate mckinnon kate mckinnon is an absolute legend she is a comedy legend in this film she basically plays the slightly doolally sort of like cat lady hr lady who trying to keep everything pc keep everybody happy non-offensive uh the they call it a christmas party it's a non-denominational seasonal get-together um things like that so it's 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 really funny, um, 
and so yeah, I do I do recommend this film actually. But the film is loaded with Christmas iconography, as you can imagine. Uh, everything from Jesus appears in it with with a reindeer and a donkey, and then there's a Santa riding a, a, a printer, um, and then everyone gets absolutely loaded and drunk. So it's it's a it's a damn good film. Uh, is Office Christmas Party. Um, but those two were sort of like they, I love them. I do. I watch those every year. They really make me laugh. They make me feel, bring me up to seasonal joy, especially when everything else is, is a bit crap this year. So those I'm going to recommend as your sort of your entry points, your comedy entry points. Check those out. They'll make you chuckle. But we're leaving comedy and we're entering into another territory now. We're going to start entering into darker territory with Krampus from 2015. Um, so Krampus is uh, as a character, as a, as a folklore, is the Anti Claus, he's the anti Santa Claus, celebrated on, on, on um, uh, Krampus Night in Germany. I think it's Krampus Night, something like that. Uh, December the fifth, and they people dress up as, as uh, Krampus and they whip each other and do some other bits and pieces in, out in the streets. Um, all a bit, all a bit German. Um, but it's cool. It looks really good fun. But Krampus is exactly the thing. The the law is that if you are a bad child, he will, you know. Santa might leave you a, a lump of coal, but Krampus will stuff you in a bag uh, and then whip you with reeds. That's what. He... So he's a good, he's an interesting character. He's a, he's a fascinating horror character, especially to do with folklore. Um, but it's it's more about again. This comes into this corporate, you know, this idea of corporate greed and, and the commercialism of Christmas is in there. I mean, the opening of this film is people storming into a crisp into a shop just to get the the bargains and complete their Christmas shopping um, and then it sort of falls into this sort of family, it starts almost like it's a family comedy, you can imagine this being the start of like uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation or something like that, like you have all the you have all the cliched um, family characters there, you know, the the dad that never gets comes away from work, the busy mum, the crazy, you know gun-toting right-wing uncle the drunk um, you know, great aunt um, the horrible cousins, like it's all there. It's an atypical sort of like Hollywood uh, anti-family, if you will. Um, and and then sort of it then gets into why they're all the much. It's basically it comes into them being the McAllisters or the McAllister family from Home Alone. Like you know, there's a kid in there that really loves Christmas and really wants to celebrate it, but these horrible people sort of end up spoiling it by being a bunch of dicks. And so he sort of throws his Santa letter in the fire. So he's he's picked on for throw, you know, for. Um, uh, doing it and throws his Santa into the fire. Instead of it going to Santa Claus, it goes off to Krampus, and the Krampus comes to pay them a visit. Um, so it's about the punishment of Christmas. It's about the punishment. What do you do if you aren't the 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 person you know that's going to be all holly jolly when Santa arrives? Uh, well, this is where it sort of gets into the darkness. Now it it, it comes into this idea of. Um, Almost like a Christmas Carol, like they are taught a lesson by going through a, a journey, like you know, um, Dante's Inferno thing, sort of, if you will, where <clears throat> representations of Christmas. So this thing of coming into the iconography of Christmas, like it turns on them. These things that should bring you joy start to turn on them. So the first things first is snow. Like you know, you supposed to have this beautiful winter scene, see the the lights and stuff. But what happens is that that turns on them and they get snowed in trapped can't go anywhere so they lose their daughter in the snow that plays later on then they are attacked by angry um carnivorous gingerbread cookies uh, a toy in the attic that tries to swallow a child 
other toys, like a doll that's face cracks open and there's a skull in it, all these different bits and pieces. Really, like, gets a bit dark, but it's really cool. These things that you would recognise as, in other films, in other, other contexts, at the, the apex of sort of, like, typical, um, traditional Christmas iconography. Um, and they turn on them, and that's the, this punishment, that their house becomes under siege from Krampus and his helpers. Uh, and this film, the other thing is about this film that's so cool is there's like an inter thing in the middle where you learn about the lore of Krampus from the good aunt, you know, like the good granny uh, who's come from Eastern Europe and sort of retells or regales this tale of the Krampus and when she was a child and how her entire village was killed apart from her by Krampus. Um, so it then obviously goes, you know, goes into the sort of the typical sort of horror things where they've got to get through each of these scenarios and they get, you know, better and uh, stronger by doing it and they learn the lesson of you know, respecting the family. But they all get taken on. And the, the thing is, there is a positivity at the end of this film because the boy who believes in the spirit of Christmas does stand up to Krampus and shows, you know, some way of doing it. I think he has like a Christmas decoration and, and this other thing. So you'd think that that is going to give them this happy ending that yes they've learnt the lesson that this is going to be their turn they'll have their uh, Christmas carol Ebenezer Scrooge Christmas morning moment where they can all jump out of bed and say you know I'm alive boy go get me a turkey um, no none of it they do they come downstairs and start opening the presents and then they speculate on something because it feels wrong and then it's a great moment when it pans out and you realise that they're actually trapped in a like a bauble uh, that has been captured by the Krampus, and it, you know is that they are there then trapped in that that moment forever, um, and it's a it's a punishing story. You know, it's supposed to be. That's exactly what it's supposed to be. You are supposed to go, yeah. Um, it's not the happy ending I was expecting. It's not the sort of them going to go holly jolly and wrapping presents and, and hugging each other in, that they survived. Like they don't survive. Spoilers, I told you about it. Um, but the lessons are learned. Like it's clear they've learnt the lessons, but it's too late. And so really you take away from this thing of like, you know, don't let it be too late. Take your time now to, you know, see your relatives and all that kind of thing. So let's apply the rules quickly on this one. The story is impacted by the events taking place at Christmas. Yes, this is Krampus coming for them. There is no other time of year that this could happen. This is literally about the spirit of Christmas. The lessons learnt make the people in this film a better person. Well, the boy obviously learns it, but they do learn it. Like, it shows it at the end. They have learnt the lesson. Uh, and they, they obviously are better people. It's just too late. The positivity of Christmas iconography must play a part in the story. Well, he does. The boy, when he stands up to Krampus at the end of the film, shows, I'm sure it's like a bell or like a, a bauble or something to represents, that represents like, his love for Christmas. And how he... Um, it, you know, believes in it and believes in Santa and believes in uh, the true spirit of Christmas um, doesn't start enough but it's there uh, and obviously in the rest of it I love the fact that they twist iconography, the whole thing is meant to be positivity at the end because they learn the lesson of, of joy but the, the, there's a moment where the jack in the box becomes like a monster that tries to eat people Like that's awesome, so that's some of the Christmas iconography so Krampus from 2015. Right, we're going to take a bit back. We're still going dark. Last two, final two films now, and the the, the two biggest. One of them, uh, probably more controversial than the other. Number two of my alternate Christmas movies is 1984's Gremlins. So Gremlins, what do we know about Gremlins? Well, Gremlins, um, a, a Joe Dante film. It's produced by Steven Spielberg, so it's it's got all that sort of class of that early 90s sort of all the the big names. Um, 
and uh, a boy, a late, late teen, early 20, not only a boy, young man, um, gets given a mogwai um, creature for a Christmas present from his dad, who's a travelling inventor. Uh, it comes with three rules. Don't get it wet, don't feed it after midnight, don't put it in front of uh, sunlight. And uh, unfortunately, he gets it wet, it multiplies, and then those things get fed after midnight and they become gremlins. Okay, so craziness ensues. Um, and the town of Kingston Falls uh, gets pulled into uh, a night of mayhem as these small scaly creatures take over and start attacking people. <clears throat> so, yes, it is set at Christmas. I wanted to get into this because we talked about um, you know, Scrooge being you know, akin to It's a Wonderful Life in many ways, but... I think Gremlins is probably more linked to It's a Wonderful Life than Scrooge. And I'll explain why. So, as we said, in, in It's a Wonderful Life, when George Bailey is shown the life or the world that could have been without him, it's basically Kingston Falls. <laughs> you know, this is about... This is sort of... Um, you know, you don't get that, that, that alternate world um, reality, but you do get a glimpse of this thing where... You know, yes, um, so it's even in the names. Homage is all over the place. Like, it's a Wonderful Life actually appears in the film. Like his mum, um, uh, Billy, um, what's it? Billy's mum is watching It's a Wonderful Life at one part in the film. So it's there throughout. It's there. To, like, they're telling you it's there. The place is called Bedford, uh, Kingston Falls. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life is in Bedford Falls. So, you know, not totally the same, but it's, it's close enough. Um and I'll get onto some little bits in a minute, but like, as we go through, actually, about this thing, because the other thing as well, I know, actually, I'll flip this round. You're listening in, um, yeah. So Kingston Falls, uh, the mum is watching it with some of the Billy works at a saving and loans company. Billy in this film is supposed to be the George Bailey character, or at least he has the potential to become the George Bailey character. Uh, you see other people uh, in this film. Um, that could be that thing in the town and don't like Judge Reinhold plays that you know, smug git uh, character and could have been the George Bailey character but isn't it's Billy um, and so you do get this notion of like you know if, if Billy had been given this opportunity instead of looking down all the time and look you know he could have looked up and been a kinder person then maybe Kingston Falls would be in a better place um, Mrs Deagle um, who basically she's awesome at the beginning has a great death in the film uh, is the Mr Potter she owns the town uh, properties within the town and there's no one there to stand up to it this is again is the point when she confronts Billy in the bank like he backs down and it's only a, it's a dog that tries to sort of jump on her and she's oh, I, have a, I have a weak heart um, but uh, yeah she's at the Mr Potter and you actually see there's a couple or at least a woman with her kids are about to be put on the street that was heartbreaking she's about to be put on the streets and one of the kids says how hungry she's, uh, they are and she says yeah me too darling and they walk on so yeah, this is what it could have been. This is what Bedford Falls could have been without a um, without a George Bailey. And into that mix, you then get thrown the the Gremlins, which represent some of our, the worst vices of uh, of humanity. Some of our worst vices. The the, the bit in the pub, uh, the pub scenes there, specifically for that point. You see gambling, you see smoking, you see drinking, you see carousing, like. I know that all that's bad, but that's the point is that they're supposed to be representing that. They're violent, they're mischievous, they're willing to kill and attack. And so they are. They're just the worst impulses of human nature. Um, 
And so, you know, that's this sort of like this thing of like, <clears throat> again, it comes into this whole sort of like anti-commercialism, anti-capitalism message, really, is a way to read this film. It's like, you know, um, Billy gets given this, to- given this gizmo, like the, the kid who gives gizmo to his dad, he's obviously just looking to make some money because they don't sell any of their, their crap. Um, they've got to pay the rent, I suppose. And, um, but it's about that thing of like, everything's for sale. You know, if you've got enough money, you can buy anything, which is obviously the the a pit, you know, the atypical thing of, of commercialism. But again, as we've said, like this idea of Kingston Falls, like has got all these weakness points. You know, the teacher sort of like, <clears throat> even the teacher sort of like in uh, at the end of it, you, the schools. You know, he's an educator, but like clearly, like he's he's closer to a real teacher. Doesn't really care. Wants to go home for the holidays and stuff. Looking to be a real scientist rather than a teacher. Um, in the bank, you got you know, like say uh, Gerald, played by Judge Reinhold, and then um, Mrs. Deagle and Mr. Mr. Futterman, who out and out racist, who seems weirdly they bring him back, but but you know should have brought American. Um, don't buy that foreign muck, all that kind of stuff. This is a town that sort of because of this negativity was open to this, and so the gremlins sort of like represent. You can read it in many different ways, you know the sort of. Um, the other or or the world fight you know natural resources fighting back but to me I see it as this sort of like they are the evil and the vices of things that sort of like can sneak their way in and think when things get worse like the, the the door has been opened for them and they can get their way in and it basically just kicks your ass um so again it's to me it's an, another anti-commercialism and anti-capitalism film um less said about sort of like Kate's uh, you get um the story in the middle about how, how her father died. Less about that, the better. It's weirdly off-putting. I mean, it sort of works, but the, the pacing in that moment is a bit cack. But, okay, the story is impacted by the events taking place at Christmas. Oh, yes. Like, he is given Gizmo as a present for Christmas. That's the point. Um, but also the fact is that, like, you know, all these people are hunkering down. It's snowing, which has an impact on the story. So it being at Christmas is actually relatively important. A lesson must be learned that makes someone in the film a better person. Well, actually, I think Billy learns a lesson. He learns responsibility sort of throughout this film about taking things seriously and actually looking up. Again, it's sort of this thing, another thing that comes through these Christmas films is this idea of looking around you and experiencing the world rather than looking down. Uh, and I think that's actually really important in this. Um, um, I think Mrs. Deagle also learns a lesson in that you can't fly out of a window on a, uh, a stair chair. So that's a good one. Um... The positive positivity of Christmas iconography must play a part in the story. Positivity of Christmas iconography. Uh, probably a bit of a push, actually. I mean, Gizmo um, has a Santa hat on at one point. Um, that's not a great deal. She gets attacked by a Christmas tree. That's not really positive. It's a tough one. Do you know what? This is a bit of a toughie, actually. It, does does Christmas iconography pay, play? There's Christmas music, actually, is, is a big part of it. That's another thing. That distracts the gremlins and helps. Um, mm, goes to the cinema. I'm trying to think, really. Christmas iconography. Oh, okay. I suppose because again, this is the anti thing. I suppose it's it's for positivity. People learn their lesson. They they do come in as Christmas carolers and and some other bits as well. And again, it ends in a department store. Again, this anti commercialism, this capitalism idea of like fighting in the in the department store. So it's there. I think it is there bit of a push but gremlins from 1984 wonderful film absolutely absolutely wonderful love that film so much um 
and uh, I actually am one of the few people I think that I really enjoy the strangely meta and, and madcap uh, sequel. We'll cover that one day on the podcast. But number one, we're there, ladies and gentlemen. I'll probably sort of skip through a few of these because I've just been looking at the time. But now we are there. We're at number one. What is my number one alternative Christmas movie? And does it fit the rules? Well, strap in, ladies and gentlemen. I must say, welcome to the party. Because, yes, at number one is 1988's Die Hard. Um, so, let's just get straight down to it. Let's run through this. Because everyone knows the story. You know, John McClane. And, uh, you know, got invited to the got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? Uh, we all know the film. We all know the story. So, what I want to ask is, is it a Christmas film? Let's, let's, let's clarify this once and for all. So, stick with me on this one, because this is going to be a bumpy ride. Is this... Does it need to take place at Christmas? Or does it, having taken place at Christmas, um, impact the story? So, the story is impacted by the events taking place at Christmas. Yes. Xmas... Sorry, Christmas is the reason John is coming home or coming to L.A. Um, it wouldn't have happened at any other time of the year because of his relationship with Holly. So he's coming home. He's, well, so he's coming home. He's not coming home because he lives in New York. But he's coming from New York to L.A. to see Holly and the children before Christmas. This again comes into this idea, we'll come into later on, about the values of Christmas and spending time with the family like he's coming you know, he brings the big bloody bear and all this other stuff like he's coming home he's coming to la to spend time with them for christmas like he wouldn't have done this any other time like he has to have an excuse he has to have a justification um also the thing about christmas is it sort of informs the experience or the way we experience the relationship between john holly and the kids um you know this film is about family reunions and um it's this weird thing of like weirdly the events of Die Hard make that family reunion a sweeter experience because we see we, we get a glimpse of what it could have been okay um, in the start of the film we'll come on to it in a minute uh, also Hans Hans Gruber's plan requires it to be Christmas because all the floors are empty apart from the uh, Christmas party and so I said this is the second Christmas party on the list but he needs that Christmas party for taking place because everyone's grouped together and also the key people are there whilst the rest of the building's being empty. So Christmas party is crucial to this film. Number one, ticked. Okay. Right. Now this thing about the lessons learned. And I'm actually going to throw something in here. So let's think about someone who's a bit of a grouch, um, you know, thinks they're right all the time. And by the end of a scenario, by the end of it, uh, you know, Christmas Eve night, as this is, uh, engaging with some uh, darker forces becomes a better person at the end of it. That's what this story is. You might guess where I'm going with this. So when we, when, when Bruce or John, I should say, let's say it comes John, when John arrives at Nakatomi Tower, you've already seen that he's still cocky and self-assured, and he still is in that macho uh, position, thinking he was right. He was in the better position than Holly. Like He, he should have been listened to. And so what you get is... At the beginning of the film, you actually get a scene where you know Holly, um, speaking with her maid, says, "Set up the bed," but you know, just in case, because it may be that he's going to sleep over. You know, sitting in the hotel, so, and she's already done it. So, in her head, there is a reconciliation possibility. Like this could be a positive um, Christmas experience. That's what she's planning out in her head. Like she's thought about this. Holly's thought about this. You know, as women often are more planned ahead than men. 
Um, but when John arrives, that first encounter with her, he sours it by being a prick. Like, even he acknowledges it, you know, after it's happened. But this thing of, like, you know, um, he has a dig about the office, about um, the smarmy git, whose name escapes me, um, who's doing drugs in her office and that sort of thing. So he comes in with the wrong attitude and he ballses it up. Um, so it's actually these events of Christmas that teach John the importance of family. He's like, oh yeah, he, you know, at the end of this, he's like, oh yeah, and no, I really appreciate you guys and, and things. We're going to go past that because I actually do think that there is an element of a Christmas carol in this film. So, John going through the trials in the tower is like Scrooge meeting with the three ghosts, finally facing up to his possible death and a chance of living with his new wife. So this happens a bit. So throughout the film, and I'm going to say there's other bits, but these are the key ones. I'm just throwing a couple out there. So past. How does he face up to his past? Well, there's a great scene, obviously, when it's all gone to tits and he sort of... Um, he has to explain why he and Holly live separately to Al. Um, he gets to see a glimpse of the path that's been taken there, you know, uh, and, and the jealousy that came from that. And it's, it's alluded to throughout this film, but when things have gone pear-shaped... You get the nods to the past, uh, but in particular when he does, he, he confesses to Al about how um, he and, and Holly, you know, well he actually says it to Argyle. Argyle already gives him that thing, you know, sort of like he sort of says, "Oh yeah, she got a better job," and, and then he actually calls him on it and says, "Oh, and you thought she wouldn't make it, and she'd come crawling back to you," you know. So his facing up to his past continually happens through that. Al has to do it as well. So Al sort of like travels with him through this sort of journey. He's like the, he's like his Rizzo the Rat. As, as you know to Gonzo in uh, Muppet's Christmas Carol but Al has to confess about why he's a death jockey like you know why he so he confesses about killing that kid by accident and then having to overcome that in the final scene so you get he even gets like a bit of a redemption uh present we or John doesn't quite get this but we get it as a viewer so it's an odd one because I think it's there intentionally in that way but we get to see uh, when um, the reporter, the, the dickhead reporter, goes to the family and asks the kids, you know, they go, come home. Um, it's that thing of, like, what's going on in the present? How are people living their lives outside of this scenario that are important to John? Like, this is having an impact, you know. Um, and so we get to see that um, uh, as, a, as a thing. But also, like, Hans gets to see it, and so it plays differently, but it's definitely there as a present. It's giving you a glimpse into the present of what's going on and what John could have. Uh, future. So, what happens in the future? So, obviously, with uh, Christmas Carol, he faces up to his death. He literally gets shown his death. That's what Scrooge gets. Um, but in this, Bruce, Bruce, John, let's call him John McClane has to face up to his death. So when his feet are all cut off and he's in that bathroom and he thinks he's done for and he's on the radio to Al and he's sort of, you know, he gives her a message. He says, you know, when when, when this is all done, find my wife, tell her that I'm sorry, tell her that I love her. Um, and his attitude at this point has changed. Like, you know, he's gone through the shit now and he's like, look, I'm not going to make this. And Al has to convince him, like, you know, yeah, man, you're going to make this. You're going to tell her that yourself. Um... And so it's cool. I think I love that. Like that's that's him facing up to death, and as he comes through this moment, like he comes through battered and bruised and everything, but that's his um, his revelation moment. You know that moment of like you know yeah I, I've got to get through this because he could just give up and lie there in the bathroom, uh, and it's uh, it's at that point when he sort of asks the question like you know what were you doing 
Um, what were you doing up there, Hans? And anyway, so yeah, you, I think you've got that. You've got your past, present, and future. So it really taps into this thing. Um, so you, does that? So let's say, does he learn a lesson? Yes. So by the end of this film, like he truly values his family. That opportunity, that thing of it being taken away, but not just them being taken away, but his opportunity to reconcile with them was take was almost taken away. Uh, and in being shown that possibility of them without him, uh, what it really truly means is him willing to have that sort of positive reconciliation with Holly and his children. So the events on a Christmas Eve have a positive um, uh, impact on him. So definitely learns a lesson. Uh, also, the villains are focused on money over ideology. Um, and again, <laughs> this anti-capitalism and anti-money. It starts off with this idea that they are ideological terrorists, so, you know, um, release these people, you know, the what they call the, the new dawn, and they make that sort of joke. So I saw them on sixty minutes, and you think it's about an ideology. It's about you know them getting their brothers and sisters out of prison. It's not. It's about access in the bank. So you again, you get this anti. I'm also going to put this as a Christmas thing, like anti-money, anti-commercialism. Weirdly, um, they are the villains because they're after after money. When even um, you know Holly Gennaro says at the end, like you're nothing more than a thief, petty thief. And he says, I'm a great thief, Miss Gennaro. Um, so, yeah, and that, that obviously, you know, you can then focus in on the miserliness or the money focus of Scrooge. Again, another, another anti-money story. Um, so while terrorism is awful, doing it for a cause can be seen as committing these acts. You know, it can be, oh, sorry, terrorism is awful, but doing it for money can be seen as worse, if you know what I mean. You know, if you believe in something, it can almost go, well, yeah, they're nuts, but they're doing it for an ideology doing it for money you think well that's just greed as for the positivity of christmas so that moment when he has his realization and you're about to go to the, the last thing and he looks at the two bullets in his hand and it's like you know this is it he looks over and he sees that tape with the image of santa on and so this image again it makes him smile and it gives him that bit of ray of hope and that's, I constantly, I've always read that. I've always read that moment. Like he gets the idea, the inspiration of what he's going to do. Like he could just have been parcel tape, but it's not. It's Christmas tape, and that's really important. And that's how he tapes the the gun to his back, and he goes for that sort of like final moment. Um, but also, you've had the sort of like you know, now I have a machine gun. Ho ho ho. Um, you know, you've seen other Christmas sort of decorations throughout the film, but I think those two moments, the, his humor is is you know, he levitates his humor through iconography of. of uh, of Christmas, you know, he puts the Christmas hat on the the dead got the dead terrorist, and ho ho ho, like that is key to me. That you know, he's keeping his spirits up and sort of antagonising them. So the positive, that's the the positivity of Christmas iconography. Is that a stretch? What do you think? But I definitely think the tape is an important one at the end of this film. Um, and the, the other thing to learn from this film, the other thing to mention is, like you know, most films, like the, you can see something like, let's talk about Home Alone. The lessons aren't learned because they literally repeat the same lessons uh, in the next film. The lessons stick with this film. You know, it, yes, the second film is a bit of a replay of this, but at an airport. But the fact of the matter is, like, it's no longer, oh, I've got to save them because the wrong guy, the wrong wrong guy, the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, which it sort of is because that's actually the tagline. But, He's actually more on the offensive. Like he could have easily walked away, but he's there actually to save his wife. Um, and they are together. They're constantly communicating and doing better and talking about things and about her 
her her mom, so his mother-in-law and his other stuff. So the lessons have been learned from this first film. It's not that they just dropped. They're gone by the third film, which is a bit later, but that's you know neither here nor there. Um, but they are learned from the first to the second film. That's important. And so um, I honestly think going through that and looking at that. So let's just go run the rules again. The story is impacted by the events taking place at Christmas. Yes, because it resounds, it resonates, and it's the whole purpose of why John is coming back to LA or coming to LA to see his family. It's important that this film taking place at Christmas because he is coming back for a family Christmas and a reconciliation. Um, is a lesson learned that makes the someone a better film based on value, Christmas values? Yes, it's all about family. This film, it's all about family. He comes in and he ruins that first reconciliation moment by being the macho dickhead that he is. And in doing so, thinking that she's the one that should be, you know, well, not, it's not so much misogynistic. It is a bit, but that she's ahead of him. There's a, clearly a jealousy there and a, a bit of macho misogynism going on. But he, he reconciles himself with that and he comes to terms with it throughout this film to think that I love her and I actually, to be just being with her and the kids is more important. And so surviving is the point of this film, but surviving for family. So definitely a Christmas value. The positivity of Christmas iconography must play a part in the story. He gets the inspiration for what he's going to do um, because of the Christmas tape. I stand by that. So I have my three rules and I feel I've answered them. So ladies and gentlemen, we have it right there. It is definitive. I never want to hear about this again. Die Hard from 1988 starring Bruce Willis is indeed a Christmas film. It is a positive film. I have been able to link it to A Christmas Carol and I have had it on the same sort of been able to talk about it on the same list and on the same podcast as It's a Wonderful Life. So all of that together means that it is most definitely a Christmas film. So there we are. I've given you 10 films. I've talked about my proper Christmas films and my alternative Christmas films. I would say Die Hard is an alternative Christmas film because a lot of people die in it. It's not one to be sharing with the kids, uh, but it's still great. So go out and watch this film. Just a quick recap. So what have I said? I said my favourite top five Christmas films. The Santa Claus. It's a Wonderful Life. Arthur Christmas. Home Alone 2 and Scrooge. Not in that order. I've just read them quickly. And my alternative ones. Santa's Sleigh. Definitely watch that. It's really fun. Office Christmas Party. Hilarious. And then Krampus. Uh, excellent film. Gremlins. And of course, what we've just talked about die hard do you agree with my list do you agree with my reasoning am i miles off do you disagree that die hard is not a christmas you do you disagree do you think die hard isn't a christmas film well screw you i don't care because it is um so ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for listening i really appreciate it there'll be one more show out this year it's going to be a short one let's call it a year in the recap um probably going to be very short there's not a great deal to recap it's been a bit of a shit year let's be honest but i hope you have a wonderful, fantastic Christmas, and that your families and yourselves stay safe, you get the presents that you want and deserve, and that you do not come face to face with the Krampus. Uh, if you want to talk to me, though, of the Christmas spirit, I will still be available. You can contact me through the website, that's uh, 20thcenturygeek.com, or you can contact me directly through email, 20thcenturygeek.com at gmail.com or come find me on the Twitters and all the social medias. Just look for 20th Century Geek. That's at 20th Century Geek on Twitter. That's where I usually am. Come find me and let me know what you think of your favourite Christmas films. Well, my Christmas films, what are yours? What ones did you throw in? Um, 
But if you want to support us, the other thing is we've also keep up the Christmas themes. I'm looking at Christmas and horror uh, for the Patreon this month. Uh, and that will be coming out very, very soon. Um, but go and check it. We have a Patreon page. We do all kinds of stuff over there. There's going to be more stuff coming to Patreon in 2021. And, uh, you know, we're going to be making it all a big thing. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. And uh, before the end of the year, I'll see you again soon. <laughs>